And uh, can you please turn back with me to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10? I think it's page 968-969 in your church Bibles, page 968-969, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, and in the uh, handouts that you got when you came in, in the middle page of one of those handouts is an outline of the sermon. It would be very helpful to have that there uh, as well. Uh, I see a whole lot of people whom I haven't met before. Uh, some of you have, uh, I haven't preached here for a while, so uh, some of you have come since I, uh, since I came. Uh, my name is Andrew, uh, and uh, it's lovely to meet you. Uh, hope maybe we can meet later. Uh, so 2 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, outlines there, and uh, page 968969. Oh, many years ago, uh, when I was in medical school, one of the subjects we studied was psychiatry. Uh, and we had among our teachers some of the last remaining Freudian psychotherapists in the world. Uh, and it was very interesting. Uh, things in a patient's life would look one way from the surface. And if you only interacted on the surface, that's all you see. But if you understand their background and then you apply psychodynamic theory, then you see all kinds of other things that you never saw before. Uh, you see ways of understanding their thoughts and actions which you would never have thought of, and frankly, they would never have thought of either. You have a new perception. Now, Freudian psychodynamic theory is largely discredited, and the perspective it gives us is, though interesting, is, is often wrong. But God's word is true. And the gospel also gives us a new way of thinking, a new way of looking at things. It is the right way, but it's different from the world's way. And the Bible teaches us to apply that way in all areas of life. And part of our Christian growth is to learn to think God's way rather than the natural human way about everything. Because when we learn to think God's way, then we see things differently than the way we see them before. And so we will act differently from the way we've acted before. Today, as we continue our series on 2 Corinthians, we, we will see three areas in which God's way of thinking is different from the natural way in terms of leadership. And as we do that, leaders among us will learn some things about leadership from the example of Paul. And all of us will see three big mistakes that we could make as a church that arise from thinking the old way uh, and will be warned to avoid them. But before we do that, let me just remind us where we're up to in this letter. As we've read through this letter over the last few months, we've realized the Apostle Paul was having a hard time with the Corinthian church. There were these people called these super apostles who were very impressive in terms of their charisma, their speech, their aura, their reported spiritual experiences, and they were drawing people away from Paul and his gospel. They were strong and bold and successful. And Paul was weak and suffering and afflicted. But these guys weren't really believers. And Paul begged the Corinthians not to hitch themselves to them. Instead, they should join him in proclaiming the gospel message that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That on the cross, Jesus took our sin and our punishment so that in him we might be considered righteous. Uh, they should join Paul in being willing to suffer for this gospel. And fact, the fact that Paul was weak and persecuted, well, that just shows the real power is not in him. It is in Christ and that gospel. 
and Christ is the judge on the last day, those who are faithful in the midst of the suffering and weakness and all that now will receive eternal glory that nothing in this world can compare with when Jesus returns. That's kind of the thrust of chapters 1 to 6. And then as Paul sends this letter, he also knows that the majority of the Corinth church has now actually come back to his side. They had received a previous letter from him, pretty tough one, uh, and they had repented. And in chapter 7, Paul thanks God for these people. And in chapter 8 and 9, he addresses them with regard to a big project he's embarked on. He, he wants them to join him in his venture of raising money for the Christians in, from the Christians in Gentile lands for the Christians in Jerusalem who are struggling in poverty. And that would result in thanksgiving to God, and it would also result in unity between Jewish and Gentile Christians because the Jewish Christians would appreciate the Gentile Christians' generosity. And that would be really important for the relationship between churches. And so Paul makes this one of his priorities in the midst of his preaching the gospel. And he asks for the repentant Corinthians to join him in this. However, there is also a minority, and probably a very influential one, who are still enamored with the false teachers. And they still affect the whole church. These people still oppose the Apostle Paul, they were still talking bad about him in the congregation. They were still trying to influence the other people in the congregation to go after these super apostles. And so in these last four chapters of this letter, Paul has to address this challenge to his leadership head on. And we're looking at the first of these, the first of these chapters today. And we look at under the three headings you see in your outline, Paul's attitude and weapons in verse 1 to 6, Paul's authority in verse 7 to 12, Paul's boast in verse 13 to 18. Look at that first one, Paul's attitude and weapons. Well, back at the beginning of the letter, we saw that this letter is actually from both Paul and Timothy together. But at this point, Paul personalizes. Uh, he says in verse 1, I, Paul, myself entreat you. Because he's dealing with a personal criticism. Uh, and, and people are saying, uh, at the end of verse 1, that he is humble when face to face with them, but bold when away. Right? It's like people who shoot off really bold and you know, very strong emails, but then when I talk about things face to face, they're too timid. But, oh, Paul is not like that. He entreats them in verse 1. He, he, he begs them, he appeals to them, he pleads with them in this letter. And he does so through the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And those words there speak of a gentle attitude, a graciousness, an even temperedness, and even a leniency, a, a patience. And so he begs them like this in his letter, in this meek and gentle way, so that, in verse 2, he begs them so that when he is present, he will not have to show such boldness and confidence as he counts on showing against those who suspect them of walking according to the flesh. You see, quite the opposite of what the critics are saying. There's a boldness he will have to show when he comes, if the matter's not sorted out beforehand. He doesn't actually want to do that. He doesn't want to have to be firm and bold with the congregation. He will if he has to be when he comes, but he's trying not to be. He wants to maintain this, this meek and gentle kind of way of dealing with them. And that's kind of like following the example of Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is gentle and lowly and humble. 
When he has to be firm, he will be, like when he cleared the temple or pronounced woes on the Pharisees, but that's not his default position. His default position is meekness and gentleness. And, well, that's like what his father's like too, isn't it? That's what God is like. He is gracious and compassionate and full of steadfast love. And then the Bible says he will by no means clear the guilty. When he has to punish, he will. When he has to show his wrath, he will certainly do that. But he loves to show grace and compassion and mercy. And Christian leaders are to be like that as well, aren't we? We're not to be bold and domineering all the time. Our default position must be that of meekness and gentleness and humility, like Paul and like Christ. We must try to work with persuasion, not coercion, even if we have the power to coerce. We must do this as long as we possibly can. But we must be prepared at the right time to exercise boldness and confidence, like the Apostle Paul, like his master. The people who Paul will have to confront suspect him and Timothy of, at the end of verse 2, walking according to the flesh. In other words, they're saying, he's not very spiritual. These super apostles, they're, they're more spiritual than he is. They, they speak in spiritual ways. They, they tell of spiritual experiences. They seem to have spiritual power. This Paul, most of the time, is just pretty, very ordinary. He's natural. Well, Paul warns them in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Now, he's, he's fighting these super apostles. And he is using spiritual means. Verse 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, what's this? In the ancient, in ancient times, a stronghold or a fortress is, you know, is built in such a way it's very hard to attack. Right? It's designed for defense. But Paul says his weapons of warfare can destroy these metaphorical strongholds. What are these weapons, you think? Well, what do we know about them? We know they have divine power in verse 4. Or literally, they are powerful by God. God gives them the power. And what level do they work on? They work on the level of arguments, in verse 5. Opinions, thoughts. What is it that comes with God's power and works in the dimension of arguments, opinions, and thoughts? Well, it's God's Word, isn't it? And that matches with Paul's statement in Ephesians where he talks about spiritual warfare there, that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. So as Paul preaches God's Word, as he speaks the gospel and applies it to the Corinthians, he is engaged in the most spiritual of warfare. For the word of God is indeed able to persuade people and to bring them to obedience. That is the point of the spiritual battle. Friends, there is nothing unspiritual about word ministry. 
the spiritual descendants of the super apostles, they, they poo-poo it. They say it lacks power. And the spiritual descendants of the Corinthian Christians get deceived because these guys do things that look more spiritual than the faithful preaching and teaching and sharing of God's Word. But let me tell you, the preaching, teaching, sharing, reading of the Spirit's Word in the Spirit's power, that is the real spiritual warfare. We battle for the mind to bring people to obedience to Christ. So church, don't confuse fleshly and spiritual weapons. Don't be deceived by people who talk big and appear very spiritual. No, no, see things with the real spiritual eyes. Adopt the Bible's perspective. Real spiritual leaders use spiritual means in warfare. Real spiritual leaders use the Word of God. Recognize that and be persuaded by God's Word. Paul will not only have to be bold and courageous in confronting the wayward ones when he comes, he's also prepared to punish the disobedient at the right time. He says in verse 6 that he's ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. That is, once the church as a whole has been persuaded through the word, then those who are trying to lead them astray will be punished, presumably by being removed. Paul has the authority from God to do that. And so part of his work of persuasion is reminding the church of this obvious fact, that he can. And so the next section is on Paul's authority. Look at verse 7. He says, look what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. If you think you belong to Jesus, you better listen to Paul and Timothy because... Well, Paul was appointed by the Lord Jesus. His authority comes directly from him. Uh, the authority he has is verse 8. In the, in the middle of the verse, it says, is given by who? By the Lord, isn't it? It's Jesus. And so Paul is happy to speak of this authority, uh, to use his opponent's way of speaking, to, to boast of it. Uh, he says in verse 8, If I boast a little too much of this authority... I will not be ashamed. Why? Because he's not being full of himself. He's not being arrogant when he says, I'm an apostle, so you must listen to me. He's just stating a fact. He can do that without feeling shy. He is. The Lord gave him that authority, verse 8, for building you up and not for destroying you, for building the church. Right? Because God gave him the authority for building the church and not destroying it, he's appealing to them. He's trying to persuade them. He's not shaking his fist at them and writing them off. He's not trying to split the church between those who are with him and those who are against him and then simply kick out those who are against him. He's trying to build the church, isn't it? So he's making every effort to reach out to his detractors. He wants to persuade them to come on side. But don't confuse meekness with weakness. He is the apostolic authority. And when the time comes, he will use it. He says in verse 9, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. Not to scare them with empty threats that he's not going to back up. That's what, that's what his critics think. They say in verse 10, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speeches of no account. So when he comes, nothing will happen. Talk on he. But he warns them in verse 11, let such a person understand 
that what we say by letter when absent, we will do when present. It's not simply talk. He will follow through on the basis of the authority that Jesus gave him. And leaders among us, we've, we've all been given a measure of responsibility in God's church, haven't we? Uh, not the same kind of authority as Paul, but we've all been given some. Unlike Paul, we've not been directly appointed by Jesus himself. We haven't been given apostolic authority, but of the measure of authority that's been given to us, it's, it's okay to talk about it. Like when I'm saying I'm the dean of St. Mary's, or if uh, Tim says he's your congregational pastor, or if your growth group leader says, oh, I'm the growth group leader, not actually saying anything good about ourselves, lah. It's just, just stating the fact. Right? We have been given a particular opportunity, a, a responsibility to discharge. But what we all need to do is remember that God has given us this responsibility to build the church, not to tear it down. And so we must exercise that responsibility in a very careful way. We need to be consistent. What we say needs to match with what we do. If we say to do is going to do something, we need to follow through. Uh, we need to make every opportunity to, but, to, to hold people together, to build it up, not divide it. But there will be times with the support of the church as a whole, we will need to exercise that authority to remove false teachers. And when the time comes, we must be prepared to do that. But there is a far more important authority we see in this passage that is the authority of Paul himself. He is the one who is appointed by Christ. He is the one who is given apostolic authority, and all of us are under that. So if we belong to Christ, then we must listen to him. There are still people in churches who say, oh, I follow Jesus, but I don't like Paul. Can't accept Paul. That's, that's not an option, friends. The world says, oh, we live in a spiritual supermarket. You just pick and choose like what you like. But that is not the spiritual reality. The spiritual reality is that Jesus Christ has appointed Paul as his authoritative apostle. And you and I have Paul's letters and the letters of the other apostles. They come to us with the authority of Jesus himself. So we better read and obey. Don't think you belong to Christ if you ignore his apostle's authority. In the last section, the apostle Paul writes a bit more about his boast. Right? I put the word boast there in inverted commas. Uh, the word boast can mean what you brag about, or what you glory in, what you delight in, what you love, what you're proud of. And when he talks about boasting, he talks about it because, well, that's what the super apostles are doing. They're boasting. But before he does that, he, he, and what he wants to do is compare his boast with their boast. Uh, but before he does that, he wants to remind his readers how these super apostles are carrying, carrying on, right? Uh, we've seen that Paul's authority comes from Christ, and in contrast, these super apostles get their authority from their mutual recognition of each other's abilities. And when it comes to being able to talk well, well, he and Timothy can't really fight them, lah. Right, if you look in verse 12, we say, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. Right, they're kind of like really good at it. But they are using the wrong criteria for ministry. Verse 12 continues, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. 
You see, these false teachers, they compare themselves with each other and classify themselves by their own talent benchmarks. But they don't understand. Leadership of God's church is not based on who wins the Corinth Scott talent show. Right? It's not about who can speak with the best rhetoric or is the most entertaining or persuasive. It's not about who's got the best stories about their spiritual experiences. God wants His people to be faithful to Christ and His appointed apostles. And the criteria the super apostles are using is just wrong. They measure themselves by themselves, they compare themselves to themselves, they commend themselves to themselves. <laughs> and it's all wrong. Their boast is based on false standards. And one of those false standards seems to be the influence they get over the Corinthian church, and so they can boast about it. But this is too much. That is, that is not the right way to boast. Paul and Timothy don't boast like that. They don't. Verse 13, they don't boast beyond limits or literally beyond the measure that God has given them. Instead, they boast in verse 13 only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even you. The picture is like this. God in His sovereignty has measured or assigned a particular area for Paul and Timothy to reach with the gospel, and the Corinthians are part of it. And we know that because in verse 14, they did reach them. We're not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. We were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. And so the Corinthians are in Paul and Timothy's God-given area. They won the Corinthians to Christ. They can legitimately boast in them. Unlike the super apostles, they don't, in verse 15, boast beyond the limit in the labor of others. They don't boast in the measure that God has given to other people. They don't try to muscle in on churches outside this area to take over them like the super apostles are trying to do and then boast about them. Instead, they want to increase their area of influence. How? by preaching the gospel to more people. They want to see new areas of gospel work opened up. And they want to work with the Corinthians to do that. And so verse 15 continues, But we do not boast beyond the limit in the labor of others. Our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you, without boasting of work already done, in another's area of influence. That is, as the Corinthians grow in their faith and in their partnership with Paul and his team, they will help them bring the gospel to the unreached. And so they can boast about that. And so there is a sense in which, unlike the super apostles, Paul and Timothy can legitimately boast in those churches which have been planted through their own work of evangelism. But even then, Paul only uses that term in comparison with the illegitimate boast of the super-apostles. Right, Paul wants them to remember, actually, in absolute terms, there is no place for anyone to boast in their achievements. And so in verse 17, Paul quotes the Old Testament reading for today, that the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That passage, we remember, comes from Jeremiah chapter 9. Uh, and Jeremiah 9, which we read just now, spoke of a time when God would bring judgment on His people Judah because of their idolatry and disobedience. Their land would be ruined, 
Many would be dead, survivors scattered the rest in mourning, for he will punish those who are only circumcised physically, but their hearts were far from him. And then in the midst of that prophecy, and the Lord says this, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understand and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. You might remember that all the way back in Paul's very first letter to the Corinthians, right near the front of that letter, Paul had already quoted this passage to them. And there he showed them that Christ crucified was the only thing to really boast about. We know God's steadfast love because, well, we've seen his love and faithfulness in the death of Jesus for our sins. We know God's justice because we've seen how committed he is to justice in that in order to save us and remain just, Christ would die to take the punishment for us. We know his righteousness because we know that he is good and justifies those who have faith in Christ. We know, we know God in Christ crucified and we boast in him. Our delight is in him. God delights that we boast in Christ. That him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. But these super apostles, they didn't really know God. They had all the rhetoric, all the abilities, all the impressiveness, all the stories of their spiritual experiences to impress others with. But their boasting was, was worthless, really, because they did not trust in Christ crucified. They did not boast in Him. Like Judah of old, they boasted in their own wisdom. They boasted in their own might. They boasted in their own riches. So they did not enjoy the favor of God, and like Judah of old, they were under his judgment. And if that is the case, then how can they be genuine leaders of God's people? A leader is not proved genuine by what they say about themselves, but by what the Lord says about them. Verse 18, it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. And if their boast is not in the Lord, in the end they do not have God's commendation. And the Corinthians were not to listen to them, but to their apostle who preached Christ crucified to them. Leaders among God's people, do not join with the culture of comparing yourself to others by worldly standards in ministry. Don't adopt the world's perspective on success. How big is your congregation or your growth group? How many people come to the study you lead? How much is your budget? What titles have you acquired? Don't join the culture of comparing by gifts. Oh, I'm a better speaker than so-and-so. My Bible studies are better than my leadership is more. Of course, we all want to keep on growing all these things. That's right, so we can serve God's people better, yes. But you know, you can be very talented and yet not approved by God. Serve God faithfully in all the work you do for Him, yes. But your ministry is not validated by your talents. Let your boast be in the Lord and His death for you. Because that's the only thing that really matters in the end. And if you are to be a faithful servant, then treasure the people God has placed in your, your sphere of influence. 
delight to serve them. Do your best to help them grow in Christ. In the right way, boast in them. And get them to help you take the gospel out to others. Let your influence grow in that way, as together you take the gospel to people who don't know Jesus. And the gospel goes out slowly, step by step, rather than seek a name for yourself by boasting in the work of others. And church, don't be fooled by worldly standards of leadership. There are many people who can be very impressive because they can talk well, because they can market well, they can act well, they can bedazzle you with rhetoric, they can tell you about all kinds of experiences, but they are boasters in those things instead of in the cross of Christ. If you see things from a worldly perspective, a natural way of thinking, it is so impressive, so successful. But seen from God's perspective, the spiritual reality is that they are, they are not commended by Him. And their ministry is therefore, in the end, a fraud. If you have faithful church leaders, if your leaders boast in the Lord, then whatever church you're from, work with them. If they're not faithful, well, that's a different story. But if your church leaders are faithful, work with them because, well, you're part of the sphere of influence God has given them. And especially work with them to see the gospel go to the unreached. Now, applying this to Smack 1, I thank God that we do work together in Christ. I don't see any super apostles on the scene trying to draw you away, unless you're watching them online, huh? and we don't know. Uh, here at Smack, I think we're at the next stage. Remember how Paul wanted the Corinthians' faith to increase so they would help him to bring the gospel to the lands beyond them? Well, friends, that's, that's what we should be doing now, isn't it? We need to be thinking how we can take the gospel up from here. But to start with, let's, let's work together to bring the gospel to this city. Because our primary aim in church growth here at SMAC must be evangelistic growth, not just transfer growth. If we want to boast properly, it's about people being saved through the ministry. Now, of course, we welcome all who want to come and join us because the more we are, the more potential we have to bring the gospel to the unreached, isn't it? That's, that's right. That's good. But we must never be satisfied if that our church is growing if people are just coming from other churches. That's, that's not the point. The point is that together we are reaching those who don't yet know Christ. So yes, come, but we've got to reach out to the lost. That's one reason why we pushing Christianity's export so hard, huh? this time we want to partner together in telling people who don't know Jesus about Him. Because as we grow in Christ together, we want to think more and more how we can be reaching those who don't yet know Jesus. So friends, what have we seen today? We've seen the Apostle Paul's attitude and weapons. We've seen his authority. We've seen his boast. Uh, we've seen lessons for our own leaders from his example. Uh, but most importantly, we've seen three big mistakes that we as a congregation are to avoid by seeing things God's way. Don't confuse fleshly and spiritual weapons. Don't think you belong to Christ. You ignore his apostles' authority. Don't be fooled by worldly standards of leadership. Instead, Listen to godly and faithful leaders, even if they don't look so impressive. Remember that the Word of God is powerful. So work with them, that this Word may go forward. 
that people come to believe and trust in Christ crucified and find their boast in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your word you have taught us to see things in your new way. Please help us to put that into practice in all areas of life, including this area of church leadership. Help us to recognize the true spiritual weapon of your word preached or shared in your spirit's power. Help us to see the authority of the apostles and Submit ourselves and our thinking to to their teachings as found in your word. And help us not to be fooled by earthly standards of leadership, however impressive they may seem. But let us work together with, with leaders whose boast is ultimately in you and in a secondary way in those you have given them to serve. And together... May we make your gospel known to those who have never heard it, for the glory of your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we've been reminded that our boast as Christians should not be in ourselves, but should be only in the Lord. And we've also been reminded that what we are supposed to do as Christians